This is the first of a series of six new podcasts exploring specific aspects of well-being in the workplace. The series was prompted by two things. The first is that we are aware as a publishing business of the massive interest in the subject of well-being, and I think it's fair to say that it's an issue that at the very least inflects nearly every conversation we have and is more often at the core of it. The second was a roundtable event I took part in with Wellworking, who are the sponsors of the series. At that event it became apparent that we needed better conversations around the subject and fewer that relied on simplistic ideas and even simpler solutions. Wellworking are interesting in this regard themselves because they've moved on from talking primarily about ergonomics to embrace wider concerns about well-being, productivity and the interplay of the different elements of the workplace in addressing the complex issues. In that regard they are moving with the times and holding the conversations they are having and I would recommend that you visit their website. And so that's why we're here. I'm delighted that the first conversation in the series is with Alina Gregoriou, who has just published a new book on the subject called Wellbeing in Interiors. It should be enough that Alina is one of the UK's most progressive designers, but what makes her especially fascinating on this subject is that she draws on her knowledge of philosophy and her awareness of the links between wellbeing and green building design to address both the broader issues and the specifics of what we can do to improve wellbeing in the workplace. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Mark Eltringham, and this is the Workplace Insight Podcast. So, Alina, thanks for joining us today. Um, I have an obvious question. Although I haven't read all of the book, I have read um, the sections of it that I can uh, I can find as samples online, and I've, I've you know I've got some information about it. Why did you write the book now? I've been writing it for seven years. If now it lasts seven years, then yes, it's been. Um, I started writing it from a series of seminars um, that I was doing on issues that I felt needed to be discussed in the industry. So there was a lot of issues around well-being that I felt weren't being represented, weren't, people just weren't aware of. And so during that series, uh, the publisher came to me and said, hey, do you want to put this in a book? So that was then. And seven years later, here we are. <laughs> so I think it's it's taken me seven years because it's had different versions of it. It's kind of molded and crafted in different ways. Uh, but actually, we've ended up with a book that I probably wanted to write from day one. So I'm really happy the format that it's got now. And I and obviously, it's at the right time. But I think um, it would have always been the right time. So okay. there's been no particular intent to hit it today. And over those seven years, have your own views on things changed? And have you seen a, a change in the discussion um generally yes definitely absolutely um so when we first started doing the seminars that was 2011 2011 yes and um it was so interesting the kind of quite the quality of the questions and the awareness of, of context of issues was very very light and over the years definitely there's been a bigger appetite even it started off perhaps as just curiosity but now there's a real recognition of what some of this issue, some of these issues basically are trying to tackle. So you're on a different platform. Um, got a long way to go, but this is a different platform for where we started from. So yeah, definitely. Okay. And the subtitle of the book talks about the philosophy of well-being. And you're clearly unafraid of exploring ideas such as beauty and how that relates to well-being. So why did you choose the word philosophy and what does that say about your approach? But it says that I'm a philosopher, first of all. <laughs> so um, I actually do practical philosophy. Uh, so that's for, that was part of uh, my own journey to uh, find my own well-being. And um, uh, philosophy basically means the love of wisdom. 
And uh, wisdom is something that we are trying to get to have a happier life. So if I'm looking to find my own well-being, then I need philosophy to help me do that. And um, so philosophy in itself, what it's doing is um, it's helping us explore life in, in, in a real way, in a practical way, not just in the sort of academic study of historical philosophy. So if I could just put a, that explanation there. So it is actually questioning yourself. What do you think about life? What is life? What, what's your purpose? Who are you? And things like that. So, so within that premise, I questioned, well, what is well-being? And what is it that we're trying to achieve through interiors? What is the purpose of interiors? Because I can design interiors day in, day out. But if I'm not doing it for a very distinct decision for good, then I personally would be feeling that I'm not doing the right thing. So it's coming, kind, of, kind of coming from those kind of drivers that if I'm doing the job, I'm doing it. I've got to be doing it for good, uh, to do good, to help people, to help society, um, to support people, to find happiness. And, um, and part of that is, is beauty because I won't go into too much detail for, for now, but very happy to expand if, you, if, you, if anything I say raises a question. But beauty is, um, is discussed um, by Plato and uh, he talks about absolute beauty and that is basically absolute truth. So if any of us are really wanting to understand what life's about, who we are, then really beauty becomes your tool to recognize truth. So what we are lacking in ourselves, what we are constantly searching in our lives to find is actually answered by what we find beautiful because that is what we're lacking. And so during the, the design process, uh, I do different exercises that try and identify what style of beauty is found as attractive by particular users. And, um, and over the years, that's extremely useful because as a designer, then you can start tackling the aesthetic approach. So it's not one that you yourself like, because that may be completely inappropriate for your user. So we have to, as designers, understand beauty, what it means, and what is it that it's reflecting in the users. So then we create a better interior to support their well-being, basically. Um, so that's how kind of the link. Don't know if that makes sense. Hopefully, it does. It, um, it does, and I, I I draw on it a little bit in my own writings. I, I'm I'm not no philosopher, but you know I do I do take an interest in those things and the, the the sort of ancient Greek conceptions and their nuances and when they're talking about happiness and well being that yeah. are so evident in the writings of people like Confucius and stuff like that. So these are very very old discussions, aren't they? Absolutely, they're they're they're, they're eternal concepts. They're part of our nature. So they feel right to us because they are our nature. Uh, it's not something that we need to go out of ourselves to, to take and earn. We already have this in our nature. So it's about a process of uncovering this state of our being rather than adding it on. And so it has lasted these centuries. So in the sense that, you know, Confucius writing about it or any kind of African or Aborigine um, ancient truths that come from those or ancient Greek, of course, um, they are all saying exactly the same truth in a different language. And it's lasted this long because it is the truth, if that makes sense. <laughs> and, um, and it is part of our nature. So, 
you, you can you can package it in different ways, and we will do that because we'll package it in a way that is communicated in the best way for our time, uh, so it's comprehended and interpreted for our time. But the truth is the truth. So, um, so anyway, yeah. But I'm glad you you delve in it too. I'm, I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm I'm currently getting to grips. Sorry, I shouldn't talk about my views too much. But um, no, please do, please um, do about people focusing far too much on happiness when they should actually be looking at, uh, for meaning. Um, so that's one of the things I'm considering at the moment and how, um, you know, I could make that present in, in, in how we present things. You know, because I think a lot mm -hmm. of the stuff we get in, uh, in terms of story ideas and press releases and stuff, tends to focus on, on happiness. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm actually thinking maybe the focus should be somewhere slightly different not, not, not that there's anything wrong with happiness obviously you know but um you know i think meaning should should be the thing we're going at in in the work more than happiness well, that's fantastic and we're definitely going to go start it and we're going to open a philosophical conversation here because i'm going to tell you that actually they're not separate um so from a philosophical standpoint um happiness is our default state um so if somebody was going to just default on neutral then that would be a happy state um, and then purpose is about finding happiness. So, uh, and it's love also. So, um, if we're loving somebody else, so if, if, for example, in the context of having a purpose in our job, typically being about doing good or, you know, caring for people or saving the planet, whatever it may look like, then that typically is about love. Um, and love is actually what we are. Um, so again, that's a, another sort of and it's not just platonic, it's, it's all sorts of um, philosophies. Again, we'll, we'll ratify that, and hence why we're so drawn to loving things and being in love and setting the happy. But, um, but I, I, wouldn't, I would say if you try and separate purpose with happiness, then that wouldn't be a healthy... You'd end up you know, coming round back again, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I would suggest that you look at those both together because they're completely linked in my experience. Yeah. Well, I think I think one of the things is going back to the ancient languages is, um, you know, the, the, because the Greeks have, well, obviously the Greeks have a word for it, you know, in, in you know, you can see it in the Bible, can't you? In, in their use of the word love, they have three or four different. Um, words. Five. We have five different five different words for love. Five. Uh, <laughs> I know. Um, and uh, it's so important. It is so important. It doesn't come across once you translate it, though, does it? And you have to go back to the source text to say, well, Absolutely. what is the context of this? And, and what yeah. word are they actually using here? Um, yeah. And actually, uh, I've, so obviously being a Greek, I, I did go through the whole sort of time of like, oh, that's a Greek word. It means sense. You know, and the root is this and the root is that. And then I came across through my philosophical studies um, the um, Advaita. Uh, philosophy and the language that is used is Sanskrit um, and that is one of that is the I think the oldest language ever or whatever and um, now the meaning of one Sanskrit word especially when it comes to well-being and philosophical context typically will need about 20 or more English words to capture the subtlety of that meaning and uh, it is phenomenal you know, and I thought Greek was kind of, you know, pretty rich as a language, diverse, and really helped to communicate, you know, sort of philosophical contexts. 
but actually um, Sanskrit language is another level into itself. So if you're interested in languages, then I would highly recommend that. It's, 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 it's a whole new language and it's a system in itself, but it's, um, I'm just being introduced to it. I'm not learning it yet, um, but it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's probably one of the reasons why when, when we talk about well-being, sometimes we fall back on other languages, you know, and, and in particular at the moment, I think we, we, we seem to be very fond of um, uh, drawing on, on Scandinavian uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, there was the whole Hugger craze, um, yeah. and I've heard um, the new president of the BCO talking about, I'm going to get the pronunciation of this wrong, a Danish word called Arbeitsglader, which is joy in work, which we obviously mm. have in, um, in, in English, you know, so, yeah. we, and I think it's a useful thing to do, isn't it, is to, is very. to frame, frame the language that we're using. Um, very, very. I agree with you completely. Because words are symbols. They're symbols for acts, for states of being, for uh, qualities. And um, and they capture a state many times. And so you can very quickly have a much more refined conversation about a concept with the right words, um, you know, rather than not. So no, I love that idea. Yeah, it just, just seems a shame sometimes that these words get then ruined by overuse. and and. and misappropriation i think so oh yes um, don't take me down that road with the word sustainability <laughs> but, but I question is, and it's what i always consider when i'm having these discussions is do you distinguish between the word wellness and the word well-being <laughs> no. um um i don't use the word wellness yeah i don't um and I and it, and it was popping up every now and then. I could see people using it, in, you know, interchangeably with the word well-being. And uh, I don't know, it just never meant anything to me. And so recently somebody else used it and I thought, well, you know what, let me just look it up, actually. Um, and I, and I just, it just, it still doesn't inspire me. It doesn't inspire a state of being. Um, its description being, of course, uh, sort of the process of getting towards well-being, which I think was really nicely captured, I think, by that uh, description. Um, I think it's fair. I think it's a word that obviously can be useful to in the journey. But, um, but in my understanding of well-being, the fact that it is a choice that we make... Um, in a way, it is instantaneous. You know, you can decide to be fully present in the moment and in a way free. And it's not a process of, a, you know, a marathon journey, for example. It becomes a marathon journey in being more consistent in doing it. So I completely agree with that, that there's a journey there. But I don't think that wellness captures, it, does, it sort of falls in between, I think, all these different concepts and doesn't quite celebrate and inspire, uh, and this is personal, this is absolutely personal, it doesn't inspire me to, to sort of work for it. <laughs> you know? it. I guess it's perhaps, and this is maybe completely an emotional reaction to the word, um, the ending of Ness, you know, it's a bit less <laughs> somehow. So this is purely anecdotal. Um, but yeah, so no, I don't distinguish and I don't use the word, but I don't fault anybody who wishes to, um, you know, you get what they're trying to talk about. So. Whatever helps them. Okay. And why do you think the issue of wellness has become so prominent in recent years? Or do you, do you agree with that, um, that 
supposition? Um, thanks for giving me the choice. <laughs> um, so the issue, the issue of wellness or the issue of well-being? Um, of well-being. If you might, yes, I would use that. Uh, I think because we're lacking it. Um, I think in the quest for success and greatness, I think in certain societies, we've forgotten what it's all about. And um, the heart is missing. The humanity is missing. And well-being is basically the aspect of our humanity. So it's it's just purely rebalancing things and um, reinstalling things that should be there. So, and I think, as I said earlier on, our default state is one that is happy and, and well. And so we feel dissatisfied because we are not well. So I think it's just a natural rebalancing that we are seeking. Okay. And to, yeah, all that. So we've we've lost something in recent years. We that that would be the actually the problem. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's probably the fact that we've covered it up. Um, covered up the fact that you have the choice. Um, yeah. Okay. And it's done. I think it also touches upon the language. You know what we all. I mean, it's down to ego. It's completely down to ego. Um, again, we're going to get very philosophical in this conversation. Um, it's great. Um, uh, so I think it's, yeah, I think it's ego thinking it, it knows more than nature. Uh, it kind of oversteps its own nature. And, um, and, so, and we, we think about things too much rather than allowing also feelings to be valid signals of good. Okay. Uh, and I think we got ourselves into the point that we have to justify every feeling that we have instead of making decisions based on just knowledge that we innately have and accept that as valid. Um, and so we slowly, slowly, I think, been chipping away our humanity. Uh, so, yeah, so justice really coming back in. Okay. Big issues, though, aren't they? Oh, the biggest. <laughs> there is no bigger issue. <laughs> I mean, if if you're not going to be happy, why are you going to live? What what's the point of life if if it's not going to be one that you're going to wake up in the morning and think, you know what? Yep, I'm glad I'm awake, and I'm glad I've got the day ahead of me. And how you know what am I going to make of it? And I think, what is the point of of, of not doing that? Sorry, yeah, <laughs> big big issues here, yeah, as you said. <laughs> Bring it back to a smaller issue. Um, you're also mm. an advocate of green building and mm. SCAR standard. Um, yes. and it strikes me that in, in the past few years, these have become um, these standards have become very closely interlinked with um, the issue of well-being. And what forces do you think are at play here? Um, I don't know about forces. Um, what I'll just to answer the first part of your question, perhaps. The, first of all, I always talk about green interiors and green buildings as being um, different. And I, and I really, I'm just taking an opportunity here really to, to just share the message that the life cycles of a whole building and of the interior fit out inside are very different. Um, so the thinking is very different. The teams that are responsible for the decisions that go on in the whole building or in part of a building are, are different. And so I just encourage everybody to think of, you know, to think of this situation really in that way. 
um, because there's a lot of um, uh, emissions, basically, of the impact from that are happening in the interior fit out uh, by the occupant because everybody's thinking whole building. Um, so um, scar rating, of course, is uh, a standard I'm very uh, involved with um, and I support simply because it helps me drive um, the reduction of environmental impacts on, in the interiors. And um, it has got, from a legacy really um, issue, it has got some well-being, good practice measures as part of it. So about, I mean, each scheme is a bit different. So we have an offices scheme, we have a higher education scheme, a retail scheme, and each of those has got different sort of aspects of well-being in each. And we have had actually a, a very um, uh, hearty discussion in the technical committee of SCAR rating about the role of these well-being measures in the scheme and and how actually should we tackle the whole thing and this really the idea will be the ideal will be to have a triple bottom line reporting for every project you know report on the performance of the well-being issues performance of the environmental issues and then of course the economic life cycles and then you've got a sustainable decision that can be made. Now, the, pr the, the prominence of, of other schemes that exist in the industry, um, and of course, I, I guess you're thinking of well and fit well and stuff like that, um, I think is the different drivers behind those. I don't know. I didn't set them up. <laughs> um, I think they've, they've got a role to play in, in at least championing and, and um, giving a platform for the conversation of well-being. But they don't pick up, of course, the environmental issues. So I think it's really important for, for parties to be very clear about which benchmarking methodology they're using for what purpose. So typically the Briams, the Leeds, the SCARs uh, have been tackling environmental impacts of the built environment. Um, so the new well-being measures are just doing well-being. They're not tackling environmental. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to do that or not the other way. You, you have to make a decision as a project you know, which one are you going to use for environmental impacts, or which one you're going to use for well-being impacts, uh, and so and so on. Um, so that's something that we're tackling in SCAR right now for the future, hint, hint. <laughs> um, and um, I think the, some of the challenges that I, we do face in every project, and this is completely separate to whether you're using a benchmarking scheme or not, because if anybody wants to do good, you don't need a benchmarking scheme to do good. They help you to give you an understanding of what good practice looks right now and what best practice would look like, but it's not the be on an end all to you actually just acting well today in the job you're on. So I really would not like anybody to think that they can only do good if they're following any of these schemes. Um, and I say as, as one who obviously champions one, um, but I, I do think there is a decision to be made all the time on every single um, aspect of a project on the weighting towards environmental impact or, or a financial impact or occupant impact. And there's always going to be a different sort of weighting on which one is going to give way more or less for every feature. And, um, and so that, that, I think, whole conversation on projects needs needs to happen and it's not happening yet um, it's something that we really hope we're going to encourage through scar rating in the next few years so so i don't think there's any i mean from what i know there's no particular strategy that's driving anything 
There may be, of course, businesses that are trying to, of course, create profits out of well-being and things like that, which I think, you know, if you can make money out of doing good, why not? Um, it shouldn't be something people should be ashamed of. I, I, I haven't seen it in particular force at play if, if 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 i could understand your question there but okay if you want to open that question a bit further maybe if i haven't responded to it please you know let me know and i can well i'm i'm, I'm kind of where whenever i'm probably telling you from my perspective actually because of course when we get sent all these things there's information and you know from the green building council from um, the bre mm. um mm. from um the fit well and, and from well standard and stuff like that there is there is an overlap in the way that they talk about these things. And, and in particular, I notice it with the Green Building Council and um, and the BRE, you know, they, they focus on well-being um, at least as much as, as they do on, you know, what, the, what they've always traditionally focused on in terms of the environmental performance of the building. So they've kind of got, mm. um, mm. I was going to say creep, but it's the wrong word, but this this sort of development of... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's been talk about. I no, I completely. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it. I mean, it's it's great to see these organisations engaging in the topic. You know, I I do come from that. I think um, there's a, a few individuals that resisted some of the topics I was raising on well-being um, seven years ago, and now they tell me you were right. And you know what? Great. I'm so glad you can see it. You know. Oh, that's fantastic. And the more of us that can kind of come around and understand, you know, what it's all about, the better. Now, the fact that they're championing it pretty hard is, is of course, the different drivers between different organizations. Some of them need to make profits their life. Um, some of them are just doing it because their members want to be doing it and to be seen that they're, you know, really good and, and angelic. <laughs> Who knows? Whatever it is, it's still doing good. So I never, you know, I used to perhaps judge people, not perhaps, I definitely did. I used to judge people who suddenly were interested in well-being and I'd be like, oh, right, now you're interested in well-being, are you? Now that I've been doing all this work for so long, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, you know, you're helping nobody like that. And so, and these days I'm like, absolutely, the more the merrier. Um, you know, we don't have enough people championing good things. Um, so if, you know, bring it on, basically. <laughs> now, one thing that I think it would be good to chat about is is about the sort of different, because um, I get asked this a lot with SCAR rating specifically, is about harmonization of schemes. And, you know, I wish everybody, you know, we get this sort of statement, I wish everybody would have the same standards on different schemes, you know, and we don't have to produce different standards for different schemes and stuff like that. So, if I could just, I won't take long, but if I could just uh, okay. respond to that, because it does touch upon well-being also. Um, so different different schemes have different philosophies and of how they are going to function. So SCAR rating, for example, is assessor-centric. Uh, Bream and Lead are institution-centric. So immediately you've got a very different sort of nature within these schemes. So some, you know, are going to be one more attracted to one and some more attracted to the other just from how they are you know how they function the language they use and that's that's the right thing and then you you take it down to the actual criteria within these schemes and maybe some standards for manufacturers that we're using and that could include air quality for example which is of course a well-being aspect um it could be doing the toxicity of materials um 
or, or the way you're planning a space. So some of these are different between schemes, not because they are different standards themselves, but actually you just technically may think this is a more either practical standard to use or more cost effective for the nature of projects that are going to use the scheme. So sometimes some standards in, for example, Briam on Lead may be actually affordable when you've got a whole new build going on. But when you've got actually a fit out or refurbishment project going on, it's not within, you know, a standard fit out size budget or, or, or time scale. And so you have to sort of adapt sometimes. Um, and also many times the actual standards of air quality testing and things like that actually are all doing the same thing but you're using different terminology to do it. And unless somebody actually then applies themselves to understand that, they think they're different. So there's a little bit of that going on there. Um, so, yeah, so just tackling on that, really, because I think it does affect, obviously, some of the well-being issues. And air quality has really risen in prominence over the last, um, I would say, actually, year and a half only. Yeah. It really has absolutely kind of shot up and... I'm really, really pleased to see that. I think there's been a huge amount of championing going on by a long time from a lot of people, from a small group of people, but suddenly it's kind of gone a different uh, level. And I'm finding it so much easier to do air quality testing now on many projects and retail clients from store to store. Um, we're really being able to hone in on the source of emissions because, you know, we can specify materials and really replace ones, you know, that are more toxic or at least ones that we know what their air quality emissions are. And they still may have some formaldehyde in them. You know, loads of plywood and boards have formaldehyde still in them. It's a preservative. And, I mean, ideally, we wouldn't have any of those. And hopefully we'll get to the point where we, can, we don't have that. But, um, but we do. And so you'll remove as much as you can from the most emitting materials and still you'll have, you'll have high levels. And then that helps you understand, okay, well, what didn't get replaced? Or what data did we not get from manufacturers because they just haven't produced it yet? And so it's, in a way, it's like detective work. <laughs> we go back, back, back. And you can start, you know, just slowly, you know, sort of store by store, especially when it comes to retail, because you get rollouts, you can really hone in to, to improve and remove toxic materials. Um, anyway, I don't know how I've got to the point I've got to now, but <laughs> hopefully that's it. helpful for somebody there. <laughs> um, well, no, I get that. I mean, I, I kind of, because um, my background's in the office furniture industry a long time ago, and even back mm -hmm. in the 90s, you know, the, the issue of formaldehyde was a problem. So they would, mm -hmm. um, they would, a lot of them would do their own testing or they would get a testing organisation to do it and issue statements. But the perception that I've had more recently, and I'm sure somebody with the furniture industry wouldn't agree with me on this, is, is that the whole domain has become a non-issue because they all make the same statements. So, so mm. they meet a particular um, standard of, no. of their own sort of devising or, or the industry, yes. you know, common practice. Then that's oh. the problem, it just from their point of view. So that when they're taking um, a brief and, you know, submitting a tender and stuff like that, they... They, they just make the same statements as everybody else and then the problem goes away. No, absolutely. And I completely recognise what you're saying. And uh, I have, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to get into that too much. But what I will um, definitely agree with you is that we can get to a point that the industry has lifted up its act to, to the next step up and then it has to be lifted up again. And so working with Scar Rating, I definitely have, and this is kind of an insight on how we set criteria. So 
we won't set criteria to the point that they are best practice because you'll get very few people being able to do that and you lose most of the market. So then designers don't do it because they can't find enough products. Manufacturers don't think it's worth going for because it's just too much of a leap in their own business, you know, to do, to invest in. And so strategically, you have to see, well, where's the next step up, you know? And, and so then, okay, everybody comes, you know, to that step or, you know, a sort of significant percentage of the industry can come to that step. And then, okay, in the next year, you lifted another step up. And before you know it, you know, you're three or four steps up and people look back and think, oh, I've come a long way. But if you do it smaller, smaller, you know, people don't think, they just think they're competing. When, you, when you're looking at it from within the businesses themselves, it comes to a point that everybody's doing the same thing, which is from a standards point of view, great. <laughs> um, but I can get, you know, from being inside a furniture business, uh, you think, well, there's no differentiator now. So that's where as a standard, then we should be pushing then for the next step pretty quickly. Um, to make the next step up and improvements. And then you, you, then you have that differentiator again amongst the manufacturers that becomes that sort of driving force, you know, for all of them to compete in doing good. Who's going to do good better, you know, better, faster? Um, and I see that happening. We saw that happening in the carpet industry. Uh, we're seeing it now in the furniture industry, actually. And there's a lot of really good work going on um, because of the collaboration we've had with uh, rating, um, especially with the, the FISP scheme um, that for that in a way we've been quite sort of patient with, uh, but we could see a more long-term strategic relationship there. And so now uh, the next sort of the standards that they're uh, tackling are recognizing specific issues to do with, with the nature of their industry, which is of course responsibilities to do with um, the franchises, the um the contract buyers and then you've got obviously the manufacturers and you've got very different responsibilities that fall in the lap of one and the other and until now they haven't been distinctly split and so we've seen a lot of approvals for furniture just come through with a tick box issue so we've had to be patient about that because we knew this bigger change was going to be coming in um so i think so i recognize what you're saying um but i think if if there's if there are in in different sec, in different material areas sort of strategies like the one we've we've been sort of tackling you know long term and scar rating, then I think there is um, hopefully a purpose to you know progress. Um, but um, formaldehyde is one that I'm yeah I'm really hoping we're going to get very close to actually saying right zero formaldehyde. But before we do that, we've got to tackle other health issues to do with obviously things rotting um and that really brings us to the nature of actually everything is working towards well-being even the presence of formaldehyde was done with a you know a good intent at some point in the past to to help us have a better life somehow um whether it was done knowingly you know <laughs> it was poisoning us um or not at the time of course i don't know but once we know that it's doing bad it's it's at that point I think if we're starting to be lackadaisical and not pick up our acts and 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 put profit over over well-being then I think that is a that's a problem and that's wrong um but I do I always I'm of that kind of mindset that I think no one intentionally goes out there to poison somebody um in the beginning and everybody is trying to do good in their own way in their own role um but I think that evolves and I think we have to evolve with the time now and the knowledge we have um, that says it's, it's not right anymore and we have to change it. 
And we really, really need to see the push in the industry and innovation for that to come forwards. Um, which actually brings me to the other point of um, sort of bio-based materials. And it's sometimes some of the problems that we have won't be solved by just replacing one material for another. It could actually be a st- complete strategic sort of change of composition of materials. And I'm really, really excited with a lot of the sort of more um, sort of chemical, chemistry-based approaches to um, synthetics based, made from bio-based materials, because they, you know, in their nature, they're using nature basically for the way they're going to react and the way they're going to behave. So for me, it's got a double edge, you know, double win basically there. We've got the the need of the performance issue and then we've got the sort of biophilic natural issue so we're using nature to our advantage rather than trying to go keep going down the wrong road if that makes sense so so that's something that i, I think is really hopeful and um, especially when it comes to air quality and toxicity and things like that and also environmental sustainability because that hopefully means that obviously the bio bio-based materials in well in not every case because again i it's quite early on in those progresses but in, in most cases they could be biodegradable or you know, burning with no toxicities and stuff like that. So, so it's really it's a it's a win win situation when it comes to the whole environmental plus well being um, balance and, and decision making. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to wrap up. Um, yeah. And I, I could carry on talking for a long time. It's been wonderful. Is is there anything you'd sort of like to leave as a as a final statement or takeaway? I think the one thing that I think it all starts from is the fa- the fact that well being is a choice. It's a choice we have to make personally for ourselves and then we're able to make it for our clients. If if we want to help our clients find their well-being, we have to find it for ourselves first. We have to know what it means and to know what we're asking our clients to do. Um, then we'll know how to design an interior to support that. And, um, and I think that's the role of interiors. We are supporting the comfort of people. We're not giving them well-being. We cannot give people their well-being. So I'd like to leave everybody with that, to know it's very important to be clear about what we are expected to do and what we can do in the role we have. Um, and, and then I think we'll have more success. Okay, that's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.